Well, good evening. Good evening, everybody. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We're not going to read anything just yet, but uh, if your Bible's open there, that'll help. And if you were here, how many were here at the launch night of Hope and Chapel Lane? If you were here, you'll remember that the little part that I played in, in the three speakers, I shared from Isaiah 43 and verse 18 and 19, where God's word says, do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? Basically, to summarize what I shared that evening, it was that um, Isaiah 6, Isaiah says, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up. And the nation had their vision fixed on a king. He was a great king, no doubt about that. But it was when he died, it was when the old died that their vision filled with the Lord. And sometimes, very often I would suggest, the old has to die before the new can be born. And sometimes we're trying to breathe the old back to life again rather than just having a funeral for it and getting on with what God wants to do in the new. And so we're considering revival now. And I said that evening that we can never second-guess God as to how he will move in the present or the future. There are some commonalities like repentance, you know, the gospel, holiness, preceding prayer. But how revival actually manifests in itself in any era is anybody's guess. And yet we can be sure that it will not look like revival in the past. Remember, not the former thing. Why can we be sure? Because a revival in the past now will not meet the needs of the present. Now does not look like then, so why should a revival now look like a revival then? It's nonsensical. So we need to let go of aspirations over God doing a thing that he did before. And I hope to explore this over the next number of weeks. I want us to imagine and dream together what God might do in revival in the 20s, the 2020s. What might revival look like now? Will this be prophetic? I certainly hope it will be. But I want us to try to envision how it might be now, how it should be now, to actually raise our faith, increase our appetite and expectation for more of God now. And I said in that introductory evening, the best way to answer the question is what revival would look like now is really to ask what are the current needs in society that are not being met. And I quoted Jack Frost from his book, Experiencing the Father's Embrace, and he says this, before every major revival, there has been a social crisis in the land. Then God brings a fresh outpouring of his grace and begins to meet the needs of that social crisis. So what are the needs now? That's where we ought to be looking for God, to meet those needs. But surely something precedes even this. 1 Peter 4.17 says, judgment must begin at the house of God. And so before God meets the needs of the people around us outside the church, and without being judgmental or, or critical, but surely we have to examine ourselves as a church and with great humility ask the question, what are the needs we have? 
What does God need to do in us? And I want to suggest to you tonight that we need a new Jesus movement. And when I talk about movement, I'm not talking about an organization. I'm talking about a move of the Holy Spirit. And each night, probably I'm going to take up a title of of a new type of movement that we need in renewal. But tonight I want us to consider we need a new Jesus movement. Now, some of you here can remember the original Jesus movement. I'm not talking about going back to the early church apostles or anything like that. I'm talking about in the 70s, the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Who can remember the the Jesus movement at all? And certainly if you don't remember it, you you may have heard about it, and you can look up Wikipedia and find out more about it. But basically it was an evangelical movement that began on the west coast of the United States of America in the late 1960s and the early 70s. And it spread rapidly right throughout North America, Central America, and even into Europe. And before it subsided in the 80s, the members of the Jesus movement became known as Jesus people or even Jesus freaks. And its predecessor was the charismatic movement that had already been in full swing for about a decade now, and it involved mainline Protestants and Roman Catholics who testified of having supernatural experiences similar to those recorded in the book of Acts. And both of these movements, the charismatic movement and the the Jesus movement, held that they were calling back the church to a more biblical picture of Christianity, in which the gifts of the Spirit would be restored to the church. And it seems to be that the term Jesus people was coined actually by a journalist who's reporting on this uh, phenomenon. And then the movement adopted that phrase, Jesus people, a bit like Christians was an early nickname for the disciples of Jesus. It literally means little Christs, Christ's ones. And so secular and Christian media exposure in 1971, 1972 in particular, caused the Jesus movement to explode across the United States, particularly attracting evangelical youth who were eager to identify with the movement. And many of the people that were born again during that renewal of the Spirit were hippies. And it's very interesting that these were youth who were shaking their fist at society, shaking their fist at the establishment, shaking their fist at government and God, and yet God took their shaken fist and turned it into a pointed finger. Maybe you can remember that that was one of the signs of the Jesus movement, one way, one way. Do you think God could do that with millennials? What's this generation again? I keep forgetting. Generation, what is it? Z or whatever, Z or whatever. Do you think God can do that today? Although it only lasted for around a decade, it's amazing. The Jesus movement still has an influence on the church today. It affected every evangelical church right across the United States. And some of the fastest growing U.S. denominations of the late 20th century, such as Calvary Chapel, Hope Chapel Churches, and the Vineyard Churches, all trace their roots back to the Jesus movement. And even parachurch organizations like Jews for Jesus and Contemporary Christian Music Industry. The reason why you've got stringed instruments in church today is because of Jesus music that came into being during the Jesus movement. Did you know that? That was a journey to get strings into church. Now, what am I saying? Well, it wasn't without its controversy. There's no doubt about that. And some, by the way, revival is never without its controversy. 
And some of even the teachers and preachers of that movement were dogged with sin and ended badly. But listen, this is where we need to waken up. There is no such a thing as a perfect revival. What God pours out is always perfect. It's like the gifts of the Spirit. His gifts are always perfect that he gives. But we're human. We're sinful. We're frail. We're fragile and we mess things up. We make mistakes. There's never been a perfect revival. And if we want a perfect revival, we will never see a perfect revival. That's what John Wesley said. If we want revival, we need to have revival warts and all. Whatever you think about the Jesus movement, that's not my issue tonight. There's no doubt that what caught the collective imagination was having Jesus at the center and following Jesus in all of life. Boy, do we need a new Jesus movement. And when casual observers begin to call us Jesus people or Jesus freaks or Christians or little Christs, surely we must be doing something right. What do you think casual observers of Christianity today say about us? <laughs> I might call us freaks, but maybe not Jesus freaks. And I don't know about you, but I have a groaning in the depths of my spirit that the church would return to its primitive roots again and that we once more would be known as Jesus people, a Jesus movement, that Jesus would be at the center of it all and Jesus would be who defines us. So what must be addressed surely is the need for Christ to be preeminent again in the church. And that word preeminent is just defined as having paramount rank, dignity, or importance, outstanding and supreme. Now, he already is. We don't make him supreme. He is Lord. But we must acknowledge him in all our ways. That is lordship. How's that going? Now let's read Colossians 1 and verse 15 through to 23. This is about, my Bible has the heading, the preeminence of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated, enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Wow. The preeminence of Jesus Christ the Lord. Now, the background to Colossians, you may know it, 
there were false teachers who, who were invading the church in Colossae, and they were basically teaching that Christ was only one of several emanations from God. In other words, that he's not the only way, the one way, but he's one of many ways. And they mixed Christian truth with Jewish legalism and Oriental mysticism. And in fact, uh, this epistle of Colossians is a perfect answer to what we call syncretism today, which basically teaches us that all roads lead to God. And a false ecumenism where people are mixing all sorts of religious faiths together, basically confessing that they're all the same. It's an answer to the New Age movement, a nebulous spirituality without Jesus Christ at the center of it. And Paul affirms for this church, and he affirms for us today, that Jesus Christ is preeminent, and we are complete in him. And God has displayed all his fullness in Christ incarnate, and it's available to us by faith in the gospel. But we need to be called back to the preeminence of Christ, even those who confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. We need to invite Jesus again to take up his place within the church as Lord of all, and in our lives as Lord of all. Listen to this um, passage in the message in Peterson's rendering. Listen, it's marvelous. We look at this sun and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this sun and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes it and holds it together like a head does a body. He was supreme in the beginning. And leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so expansive that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. You yourselves are a case study of what he does. At one time you all had your backs turned to God, thinking rebellious thoughts of him, giving him trouble every chance you got. But now, by giving himself completely at the cross, actually dying for you, Christ brought you over to God's side and put your lives together whole and holy in his presence. You don't walk away from a gift like that. You stay grounded and steady in that bond of trust, constantly tuned in to the message. Careful not to be distracted or diverted. There is no other message, just this one. Every creature under heaven gets this same message. I, Paul, am a messenger of this message. And we have got off message, folks. Does Jesus Christ have the preeminence in our lives and in our churches? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And treasure just doesn't mean money. It, it, it basically means what you value or what you spend value on. And that could be your time. That could be your energy, your resources, your emphasis, your motives. It, it's what you esteem as being preeminent. 
Can I confess something to you? A number of years ago, I was involved in a prayer event, and some of you were actually involved in that as well. And um, I had a, a part of the day where I had to lead the gathering in prayer, and there was quite a large gathering in the open air. And it all went very well. And at the end of the day, I got into my car after a successful event, and it hit me. During those whole proceedings, you did not once consciously focus on the person of Jesus. Oh. Now, it wasn't that everything that was done throughout those proceedings was wrong or everything that I engaged in was less than standard or anything like that. It was just that I was so taken up with the moment, so taken up with my part, so taken up with the prayer, so taken up with revival, that I actually had not consciously focused on the person of Jesus. And how much of our Christian life, our Christian activity is like that? If we were to measure our Christianity by our Christ consciousness, how would we fare? How often do we think of him? Focus on him. The last verse of the first epistle of John, which is all about fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, says this, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And you hear a lot of stuff talked about Antichrist, especially if you're on the internet and Facebook and all those other things. Um, but you know what Antichrist means? Antichrist doesn't just mean against Christ. essentially means in the place of Christ. It's talking about an idol, something, or somebody else that takes Jesus' place. And it could actually be a doctrine. Now, I'm not going to get into too much controversy. Well, at least I'm going to pick my controversy tonight. Um, but, you know, we fall out about so many doctrines. And in evangelicalism, there's divides between Calvinism and Arminianism. There's divides between different forms of millennialism, pre, post, A, all this kind of stuff. And then we're into such a polarized zone right now in the world, isn't, isn't it so true? But the church has been doing this for years. We're experts at it. That's probably why we're jumping on the bandwagon with the world at the moment. Whether it's over Bible versions or dress codes or modes of worship. Denominations have been doing it for years because they have generally began because of a dispute over some particular issue. And I'm not saying the inception of every denomination has been wrong at all. But what I am prepared to say is that denominationalism is wrong where we divide from one another over our names. There used to be a church motto that hung outside a church building that said Jesus only. And over the years, um, the wind and the rain and the weather had torn the J-E-S off Jesus and it just became us only, which effectively is the spirit of denominationalism. Not denominations. I thank God for, for most of them. All of them, let's say, anyway, tonight. And... Uh, but it's the ism. Always beware of an ism. It could be a theologian. It could be a celebrity preacher. It could be a saint. It could be politics, whether Irish or American. It could be 
apocalyptic conspiracy theories. And I don't care which one it is. <laughs> Take your choice. It could be a form of church government. It could be, and who is running the church? It could be who's running the church. Is it the pastor? Is it the presbytery? Is it the elders? Is it the committee? It could be your view and all of that. It could even be revival. And for many revival movements and for many prayer movements, revival can actually become the idol. Sometimes we need to depose an it to enthrone him. Depose an it, an idol, to enthrone him. Is it it or him? There's an it factor in a lot of our Christianity, and there always has been. And it's the age-old strategy of the enemy to distract us with its other things other emphases, other passions, other persuasions, rather than him. It can be a sin in our life. It could be our self-life that's in his place. Remember the church at Ephesus that Jesus spoke to and John wrote the letter to, and uh, they had lost their first love. And the church at Laodicea, Jesus was locked outside the door. He couldn't even get into his own church And the devil today has us talking about everything and anything but Christ and him crucified. And if we haven't got to Christ and him crucified, folks, we've wasted our time. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the person. The cross is his work. And that's our message. 1 Corinthians 2.2, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I love Acts 8, you know, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, and he was um, a God-fearer and a proselyte to Judaism, and he'd be coming back from, from that great feast, and he was reading Isaiah 53 in Scripture, and he couldn't understand what was happening, and the Holy Spirit had Philip the evangelist there, just like Mitch, riding up there beside him, uh, running, sprinting, and, and asking him, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I understand unless someone teaches me? And this verse gives me a tingle up my spine tonight. As I think about it, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, Isaiah 53, all about the cross, he preached Jesus to him. When we open our mouths today, what do we preach? And I have to be very careful here because I'm not the one out on you know, the highways and the byways like an evangelist um, preaching to people the way perhaps I should and others are. So I have to be careful here. But I do know this, that there are folk opening their mouths and they're preaching against LGBT plus whatever. They're preaching against denominations. They're preaching against other religions. They're preaching against prostitutes. They're preaching against people's dress as they move past them, standing there. I'm telling you, I don't know what that is, but that's not Christianity, and that's not the gospel. 
When we open our mouths, people need to hear Jesus. When we, when we actually don't open our mouths, people need to see Jesus. When they rub up against our shoulders, they need to feel Jesus. When we pass them by, they need to smell Jesus. There was an open-air meeting during the 1859 Bible, and a preacher was hammering the Presbyterians. And somebody shouted out from the crowd, lay the Presbyterians alone and preach Christ. That's it. That was 1859. Leave the Presbyterians alone and preach Christ. In one of Count Zinzendorf's letters, he described the kind of preaching that was typical of the Moravian movement, and it was a revival in 1727. He says, Our method in proclaiming salvation is this, to point out to every heart the loving Lamb who died for us. Never, either in discourse or in argument, to digress even for a quarter of an hour from the loving Lamb. That's why they affected the modern missionary movement. That's why John Wesley was converted through the Moravians. That's why effectively the Great Awakening came, because they were a Jesus movement. And they didn't deviate from Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Just a page over backwards from where we were in Colossians. Listen to Paul's words. Philippians 3 verse 7. But what things were gained to me These I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss, all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I might win Christ. And that word rubbish is the Greek word skubalon, which means dung. And we could use various colloquial terms for that. Do you see what Paul's saying? I counted everything dung that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. You know what strikes me? Read the works of Paul. And it's very instructive what he doesn't speak about. There's little biographical detail in Paul's epistles. He shares some of what he was before his conversion, but only to his own denigration. We hear some of his sufferings, but he doesn't, we don't know if he's married, so all the theologians are still debating that he didn't tell us. We don't learn of his early childhood. We don't know what his mother's like or his father's like. We don't have the details of his academic achievements. All the space is taken up to extol Jesus Christ. In prison, we don't know the number of bars in the windows, if there were bars in the windows. We don't know how damp the walls of the cell were of the house. We don't know how hard his bed was or what the meals were like. No, it's all about Christ. And when writing from Rome, we don't hear of the political situation that there was in the empire. 
And there was plenty going on there. We don't hear of the Edict of Nero. There's no mention of the attempted assassination of the emperor or the slave uprising. We find only Christ, the chief cornerstone of the body, the head of the body, far above all principalities and powers, might and dominion and everything that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come, the one who fills all in all. Jesus. And we need a new Jesus movement. We're called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, God's unspeakable, indescribable gift. Hanging in the Berlin Gallery, there's the most unusual picture by the artist Menzies. And what's unusual about it, it's, it's called the unfinished painting. Um, the artist was portraying the king and his generals in this portrait, um, but he took so long painting the generals that he, he died. <laughs> the, the, the artist died. And so there's this wonderful painting of all the generals in place in all their glory and this big space where the emperor was meant to be. Paul spent his life in Judaism painting the generals, the philosophies, the doctrines, the rites and rituals of Judaism. But then one day on the road to Damascus, he had an experience where he encountered the living God in Jesus Christ. And that personal encounter changed everything. And from that day on, all he wanted to do was to paint the, the, the emperor the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I'm asking tonight, is he missing? Is he missing from our lives? Is he missing as the central reigning figure in our homes, in our businesses, in our churches, in our organizations? I thank God for crown Jesus and that they're called crown Jesus and that they do seek to crown Jesus. Paul formerly was occupied with the generals. And can I say to you tonight, Christ wants his church back and he will have it back even if he has to start something new and start something somewhere that you mightn't appreciate but he's going to have his church back no matter what. Do you know what the best definition I think of revival is? Falling in love with Jesus all over again. I think it was Valentine's Day, 1903, when a pastor in Wales asked his youth group, what does Jesus Christ mean to you? And a young girl by the name of Florrie Evans stood in her, her pew, and she says, oh, how I do love Jesus with all my heart. And that was the start of the Welsh Revival. A young person who said, Hi, I love Jesus with all my heart. And tonight as I close, I want us, I want us to hear the clarion call of the Spirit for a new Jesus movement. I want us to hear Again, the breastplate of St. Patrick. 
I arise today through the strength of Christ's birth with his baptism, through the strength of his crucifixion with his, with, with his burial, through the strength of his resurrection with his ascension, through the strength of his descent for the judgment of doom. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.